welcome back and quench your thirst for interfaith exploration and rock the foundations of tradition with hashtag Theology. Amplify your beliefs, challenge the status quo, and discover new dimensions of spirituality, all while bonding over a cold one or a warm one, depending on what you like. So let's raise the theological volume to 11. All right, welcome back to the Brew Theology Podcast. Hope you're having fun out there. It's hot, it's summertime, and this leads us right into our discussion today uh, with Dr. Celeste Ross-Miller. Am I, am I saying that right? Yes. Yeah. Yeah. Uh, we're going to crank the heat up and, and talk about something pretty heavy. Janelle is going to introduce our guest. Uh, before we get into that, if you, anybody out there on the interwebs would like to start a Brew Theology chapter, that's part of the heartbeat of what we do and, what, and why we do this. Um, we want to not only for you all to engage in these conversations with your earbuds, but I think more importantly, with the people in your community. So this started in Denver many years ago. We have chapters across the country. I'm in Waco, Janelle's in Denver, and we mostly are in the Southeast, not many West Coast. So if you're in the West Coast and you're like, hey, I should, what's up with our West Coast people? We need to get some West Coast chapters going. We do. Um, so just uh, you can email or find us on Facebook, Ryan or Janelle at brewtheology.org. You can find all of our stuff online. We're at Brew Theology Facebook and Instagram, Brew underscore theology on Twitter. And I think we need to get a Threads account going. That's the new one. <laughs> I have an account. I don't know why, because I feel like I had FOMO for like a day or two. So I said, I'm going to have a Thread account. So I'm on there. Maybe Brew Theology probably should too. It's the now, I guess. Zuckerberg and, <laughs> and, and Musk going at it. Oh my gosh. With a side, <laughs> side note here, I actually would like to see them fight. I'm just saying. Really? It would, it would It would be fun. It would be hilarious. I think it would be an embarrassment to the Western world, but it's okay. Well, it's already embarrassing in a yep. lot of ways. It's just like, <laughs> that to me is like the picture of where we are as a society, unfortunately. Yes. So anyway, any, anything Brew Theology related, just email us, uh, message us, and we'd love to get you started. That's it. All right. Well, I am very pleased to introduce my friend, and we work together in organizing here in Denver, Dr. Celeste Ross-Miller, and just a few deets about her. Dr. Ross Miller taught comparative religion at Regis University and Metropolitan State College. She's a member of Together Colorado and serves on the Climate Justice Committee. And Dr. Ross Miller is a certified trainer for Laudato Si. And if you don't know what that is, she's going to explain all of that to us. So Celeste, we're so glad to have you. Welcome. Thank you so much. It's really an honor to be here. And this is my first podcast. So <laughs> I'm kind of awesome in, in seeing how this goes and looking forward. I'll just pretend that you guys are my classroom or something. Well, usually what we start with is when we're in the pub sitting around the table, just give us your name and kind of a little short story about your theological background and how you got to where you are today. Okay. So I'm Celeste Rossmiller. I'm a native of Denver, though I did college in St. Louis, Missouri, and seminary in Chicago at Catholic Theological Union. And then uh, much later in life, decided it, I needed to have a PhD and teach college. And that was after I started teaching college with a master's degree and realized that, duh, this is where I needed to be and have sort of known for a long time that was the case. So I went to Isla School of Theology and Denver University here in Denver to get my PhD. At that point in time, I started in 1998, the, the issue of trying to understand 
uh, a theological position that includes the earth seemed to be a really major issue, a really major topic to study. And so I decided that though Isla School of Theology and DU didn't have any majors that resembled eco-theology, which is the field that I'm in, and it was still a pretty new field. There were just a couple of schools where there were eco-theologians teaching already, like Dr. Sally McFagg at Vanderbilt in Tennessee and Rosemary Radford Ruther, who was teaching at Northwestern in the Chicago area, Evanston, Illinois. So those were some of the places that I applied and thought of studying, but ended up staying home in Denver, which is my place. And so it took a while to uh, put together different elements of a program that, and actually my program was very strong in comparative religions. And so part of my studies were to do Buddhism and Taoism and Confucianism and, and essentially kind of focus on Asian religions as a minor. Um, but when I came to writing my my theology, I found myself gravitating back to my Catholic origins, which I had never left. I just had sort of multiplied or stacked knowledge from all of these and enriched myself from all of these different fields. So in terms of talking to an interfaith group, you know, I have that pedigree too, I guess I can claim. But but yes, I, I started looking around for something a topic that I could read about and write about and think about for a whole year, which is what they expect you to do for a dissertation. And that will be a unique contribution that isn't written all to pieces already. And so what I came up with was there are three, sorry, there's my cat too. Good morning, that's Willow. Anyway, three local bishops documents. One of them is the Columbia River Watershed, Caring for Creation and the Common Good. So obviously that's in the Northwest and Southwest of Canada, the Columbia River. And then two letters to Appalachia that I had heard about and started reading. And I realized if I wanted to write a theology of place, a theology that combined ecology an understanding of the divine and an understanding of humanity, that these would be remarkable, amazing documents to work with. So finally landed on a topic in around 2004, spent 2005 and the first part of 2006 reading and writing and studying, putting together a multidisciplinary dissertation that includes agricultural ethics and Marxist geography and and Holy Spirit theology and all kinds of interesting things blended together and based out of also these three amazing pastoral letters. And yeah, so I finished my degree and got my PhD. And then in 2015, Pope Francis, who had been Pope for two years at that point, wrote this document called Laudato Si and subtitle on care for our common home. Laudato Si is the first two words of St. Francis of Assisi's canticle kind of creation. It's medieval Italian for praise to you. The next words are O Signore, praise to you, O my Lord. 
And then he goes on and praises brother, son, sister, moon, on and on through the whole creation, ending with sister death. Francis purposely took the name of Francis of Assisi because of his care for creation and because of his peacemaking aspect of his life. But that's not the, the biggest piece of this document, obviously. So anyway, I'll stop there. And Thanks. That, that was great. You, I mean, you clearly have a, a passion for climate and religion. And I, I had no idea the interfaith background. I know you and Janelle know each other. Very fascinating. We could probably have multiple conversations regarding all kinds of things. So obviously we're going to be talking about this uh, Laudato C, praise be. So can you kind of go back a little bit and just talk about the Catholic social teaching prior to the Pope back in, I think, 2015? And then why th this Pope, would he, why would he address this issue the way in which he has and compared to previous Popes and, and the Catholic teachings? Sure. So let me just say that, again, for, my, for myself, one of the reasons that I hang in with the Catholic Church is because of the Catholic social teachings. And so this is a whole collection of study, of writings that in some ways you could say go back to the Gospels. I mean, obviously, if you're really carefully reading the Gospels, there's a ton of stuff about economic issues, poverty, uh, healthcare, the ill, the needy, all of that kind of thing. And the epistle of St. James, which is a short little epistle found almost at the back of the New Testament, is very much uh, what could be considered Catholic or Christian biblical social teachings. But the formal beginning of Catholic social thought begins in 1891 with Pope Leo Thirteenth. So picture 1891, that Go back uh, 40 years, around 1850, with the real beginnings of the Industrial Revolution and how that changed the entire complexion of society in Europe and in the United States. I mean, from total backbreaking slave labor, which certainly did continue even after the uh, emancipation of the slaves, but with the beginnings of the cotton gin, for example, the invention of the cotton gin, how things began to change in this country as well. But if you can picture Europe and people being essentially forced culturally, societally, to leave uh, farming and rural life and villages and that whole kind of way of life and having to move into the cities to take jobs at these new factories that were producing things. And so that's where you have Adam Smith writing about, you know, his whole documentation of how and touting what a wonderful thing this is, that now it only takes, you know, instead of one person needing to take all day to make like 10 little pins of some kind, now you can get out 10,000 pins in a pin factory in a day. Woohoo. So, but how that diminished people's personal lives became slave labor but to the factories and to the rise of capitalism. So capitalism isn't a reality that has existed down through time. And this is something that the Pope addressed, all the Popes, all of the Popes from Leo XIII onward have addressed. The tensions between Marxism and capitalism and that there's got to be some other way to live and has to be a, a more middle way that is more just and for Popes more 
you might say, more gospel. So in any case, Pope Leo was petitioned by a number of priests in Europe and bishops who saw what was happening to their people. And he was asked, wouldn't he please put out a letter from, it's called ex cathedra, from the seat of the Pope, from which is seen to be, you know, coming down all these centuries from St. Peter. So cathedra is the seat of Peter, the first Pope. And so with the help, actually, and sort of some ghostwriting, actually, of some of these priests and bishops who had been labor priests and bishops who helped put together this letter. This letter was published in 1891 and just sent shockwaves through Europe and the United States, the, the Catholic world, you might say. And so that's kind of where the Catholic social teachings really got their start, Every pope since Leo has written these encyclicals, is what they are technically called, and they're sent around to the entire world. And, and then also then bishops have councils, local councils. So the entire United States has bishops, a bishops council, USCCB, United States Conference of Catholic Bishops, and so do the Philippines, and so does you know, Haiti and the whole of Central, uh, the whole of South America has a big one, but then smaller places in South America have each country and smaller places beyond that have their own bishops councils. And so that's where I came up with the uh, local bishops councils of Appalachia and the bishops council of the Northwest. But then the Catholic bishops in the whole United States, for example, in 2001, put out a, a fairly slender document, but pertinent and, and helpful nonetheless, called Global Climate Change, a plea to dialogue, prudence, and the common good. Um, in 1984, they put out a very controversial pastoral letter called Economic Justice for All, a pastoral letter on Catholic social teaching and the U.S. economy. And I'll tell you, the Catholics who were uh, chief capitalists in different places in the country had a lot of uh, firebrand language to, to say how they had overstepped their bounds, which then is the same thing that happened that in 2015, when Pope Francis I wrote this letter and promulgated it. Shortly thereafter, he came to the United States, talked to Congress, talked to the United Nations, and there were so many sort of conservative Catholic voices, um, both in Congress and, um, and commentators in the Catholic world or the United States world, who said he had no right to be talking about the science of climate change, what did he know? Well, it turns out he is a Jesuit. And so he did also do teaching before he became a bishop, before he became a cardinal, before he became a pope. And he does have some background in science. So uh, plus he can read and uh, you know put together thoughts from other thinkers and scholars and so on. So there was a certain amount from the conservative elements in the Catholic world in, in the United States possibly elsewhere, who gave a lot of pushback to this document, which is also relatively sizable. It's 64 pages. No, I take that back. It's 128 pages. And 
It's 246 paragraphs. Catholic social teachings number their paragraphs so that you can locate things rather than the Bible having chapter and verse. The way you find things in a Catholic social document is to number the paragraphs. So 246 paragraphs long, six chapters that he has undertaken here to address as just a massive breadth of issues that have to do with climate and with how we as humans, where we fit in the planetary scheme of things. And so one of the things that's so remarkable is if you go back to the medieval era and the thinking there, they had a very pyramidal understanding of reality, that everything, that you had God at the top, and if it was in the human realm, it would be the Pope or the king at the top, and then, you know, a small strand of saints and angels or in the human realm, you know, the nobility and so on. And if it was in the ecclesial realm, the cardinals and the bishops and so on and so forth. And then you go down from there in this great chain of being, it was called. So very hierarchical in the whole way of thinking about it. Francis, and you can trace this trajectory down through time from like Pope Leo and all that you would talk about is humanity. The rest of creation is not such a big, huge deal. Humanity is the central, is the core. Francis talks over and over about animals and the treatment of animals and the importance of the biodiversity represented in the animal kingdom and the waters and so the ecosystems and so on and so forth. And so human dignity is always pretty much, I would say, going to probably top the list, at least to date top the list of the seven most important things that Catholic social teachings teach about. Human dignity is going to be way, way up at the top. But what the bishops of Appalachia and the Columbia River watershed and what Pope Francis, and I must say, Benedict XVI and uh, John Paul II also wrote on the environment, but nothing to the extent of this. Or they spoke like New Year's Day, I want to say, what year was that? I'd have to look back in my notes. But New Year's Day, I think it was 1990, that John Paul II gave his New Year's message it was totally eco-theology totally an ecological message, how we need to change our attitudes and live better on the earth and take into account the poor and so on. I, I love the history. That's, that's, I, I really wish that with it coming from the Protestant tradition that we would have something similar. I, and I'm, I don't know what that would look like because, you know, we don't obviously don't have a Pope with the Protestant tradition, but it's fascinating. I, I thank you so much for that. Yeah, well, and let me say... Here's a sample of a Protestant thing. <laughs> Coming out from the Presbyterian Church, it's called, And the Leaves of the Tree Are for the Healing of the Nations, Biblical and Theological Foundations for Eco-Justice. And so this is a statement that, that a Presbyterian, Dr. Carol Johnston, wrote and that the Presbyterian Church, you know, accepted as a, a statement. Some of the Lutheran congregations or whatever they call their compendiums kind of thing have come out with some of these kind of statements. United Church of Christ 
has had a very strong statement and a segment of its um, overarching leadership where they have their annual meetings, conventions every year, and that kind of thing. And there's a really strong segment in the United Church of Christ, for example, that keeps coming out with um, major statements on the environment. So it, it's happening in all the Protestant churches. It's happening in all the world religions. I mean, you can go and get big, thick books that are Buddhism and ecology, Confucianism and ecology, name a world religion, Islam and ecology, and so on. Books that have just you know, so many writers, many topics and things like that. So in world religions, it's a happening thing. It's happening. There is even an evangelical environmental network, E-E-N. And so even, I mean, kind of in our country where the evangelicals tend to want to sometimes at least be climate deniers, You've got the Evangelical Environmental Network, people who are saying, wait a minute here, it is God's good creation. We yeah. do need to attend to what would the divine want us to be doing in this time and place. On all these things happening in the margin, obviously, with you know, within this specifically, you have a bigger microphone, right, with the Pope. But it is yes. cool seeing little pockets all throughout the country and the world, as you're saying. So that's encouraging. Yes. Yeah. yeah. Well, when you came to visit us in the pub, we went through Laudato Si' kind of chapter by chapter. So do you want to start with what the Pope talks about is happening in our common home? And what are his opening concerns about how this impacts life on the planet? Good. So let's jump in and um, get into his his work itself. Like I said, there are six chapters. Let me maybe just read the titles of each chapter to give you a sense of where he goes in this amazing letter. Chapter one, what is happening to our common home? Chapter two, the gospel of creation. So, and I'll just say every encyclical or every work of Catholic social teachings from whatever size group is always going to land itself strongly in the biblical document. Chapter three, the human roots of the ecological crisis. So right away, you can see how this is pushing back at some of the climate denier kinds of stuff that wants to say, well, maybe the climate's changing, but doesn't have anything to do with what humanity is doing. So the, the Pope takes a whole chapter to address the fact that science is saying there are human roots. It, it is human spawned. Chapter four, integral ecology. So here he introduces this term that he coins, integral ecology, which basically means the uh, destruction of the earth parallels the massive poverty and cultural destruction and so on of humanity. And both need to be addressed simultaneously. Whereas sometimes in some of the earlier, at least, deep ecology materials, humans were kind of pushed to the margins, kind of like the earth can, can live without humans 
even though humans can't live without Earth kind of thing. So I think of all the Sierra Club calendars. Do you ever see a human in any of the beautiful scenery and stuff? In some ways, that's kind of a sample of or um, a visual of deep ecology is this, you know, let's save the wilderness, but don't worry about the indigenous peoples who have served wilderness all of their existence or something. Chapter five, lines of approach and action. So this is where it gets into political and organizing kinds of things. And then chapter six, ecological education and spirituality. So, but the opening, the, but there is an introduction previous to all of those chapters. And so he starts out with uh, quoting, Laudato si, mi signore, praise be to you, my Lord. In the words of this beautiful canticle, St. Francis of Assisi reminds us that our common home, earth, is like a sister with whom we share our life and a beautiful mother who opens her arms to embrace us. And then quoting Francis again, the saint, praise be to you, my Lord, through our sister mother earth, who sustains and governs us and who produces various fruit with colored flowers and herbs. So that's his first paragraph. That's his opening, kind of this prayerful invitation and setting the thought world not this hierarchical chain of being, but this circular, globular kind of sense of here we are, all of us together, and on this sacred planet. But then he gets into this sister now cries out to us because of the harm we have inflicted on her by our irresponsible use and abuse of the goods with which God has endowed her. We have come to see ourselves as her lords and masters, entitled to plunder her at will. And this is, in fact, the thought world that came in, starting with the scientific revolution in 16, around 1600. Francis Bacon, Rene Descartes, Isaac Newton, and so on. All of these famous science philosophers that were writing right around the 1600s had removed themselves and backed away from any kind of moral stance toward the planet and in fact talked about raping her and plundering her goods and putting humanity at the total center of reality. Think of Leonardo da Vinci's Vitruvian Man. You have the circle and you have humanity as the measure of all things in that circle, that, that male figure standing there. And this is wanting now what eco-theology, uh, wherever, whatever strands I've studied of it, eco-theology is trying to now create a new thought world that brings us back to a more perhaps indigenous understanding of ourselves as totally beholden to the circle of life and so on. And so this is the Pope is writing about this. So in place of that sense of seeing ourselves as the earth's Lord and masters entitled to plunder. And he says, the violence presence in our hearts wounded by sin is also reflected in the symptoms of sickness evident in the soil, in the water, in the air, and in all forms of life. This is why the earth herself, burdened and laid waste, 
is among the most abandoned and maltreated of our poor. She groans in travail, quoting Romans 8, the epistle to the Romans. We have forgotten that we ourselves are dust of the earth, quoting Genesis 2, 7. Our very bodies are made up of her elements. We breathe her air. We receive life and refreshment from her waters. And so that's the first two paragraphs here where he's, you know, setting out in very clear terms some of the change in thinking that we need to bring about in ourselves. And so as is typical of Catholic social thought, he begins then by going through his predecessors and the things that they have already taught along these lines. So he goes into John the 23rd, who was the Pope uh, for just a few brief years, an elderly man elected after um, Pope Pius XII's long reign during the, the 1940s, 1950s. And John the 23rd was the one who came in and started Vatican Council II, which was just a totally earth-shaking experience, three years of meetings of the bishops in Rome and so on. But he wrote things, uh, one of his messages was called Pacem in Terris, Peace on Earth. And then the next Pope, Paul VI, came in and was talking about that we needed ecological concern because of the tragic consequence of unchecked human activity. And this is a quote from Paul VI in 1971. Due to an ill-considered exploitation of nature, humanity runs the risk of destroying it and becoming in turn a victim of this degradation. I mean, just amazing insights, just these little zingers. And then John Paul II, Benedict XVI, so here's one of Benedict XVI, who we think of as a very conservative pope, but which he was. But he says, for example, we have forgotten that man or humanity, humans, are not only freedom, which we create for ourselves, but humanity does not create ourselves. We are spirit and will. So anyway, he continues through then moving to a broader circle to the Greek Orthodox communities who are led by kind of, they call their kind of Pope kind of figure, the patriarch. And Patriarch Bartholomew has been an eco-theologian for decades also, and speaking out to, from the Orthodox traditions. Let's see if I can find a quote here. So Bartholomew asks us to replace consumption with sacrifice, greed with generosity, wastefulness with a spirit of sharing, and asceticism, which, and this is a direct quote from Bartholomew, and which entails learning to give and not simply to give up. It is a way of loving, of moving gradually away from what I want to what God's world needs. It is a liberation from fear, greed, and compulsion. So that's then how he starts laying the foundation on the ground of others standing on the shoulders of giants, so to speak. Then he moves into Francis of Assisi and talks about all the ways that Francis taught by life and word how to, how to live as a, a sister of you know, the plants and the waters and the clouds and our sister or a brother. And then Francis, the Pope, gets into my appeal, 
And he says, humanity still has the ability to work together in building our common home. I want to recognize, encourage, and thank all those striving in countless ways to guarantee the protection of the home that we share. But then he talks about the new dialogue, the conversation that we need to have with the poor, with youth, with indigenous peoples, and with science. And these four aspects are, and then he says, you know, I am addressing this letter, not just to the Catholic population, but to all humanity on earth. All of us have to hear the cry of the earth and the cry of the poor together. All of us need to change our ideas that we have inherited into a way that we can live better together. So yeah. he says, yeah. That's awesome. Yeah, that's beautiful. So obviously you've referred to this and this is a foundational pillar uh, within any religion, sp specifically Christianity, uh, the B-I-B-L-E, the Bible. So how does the Bible enter into this conversation about our shared home? And could you just talk more in detail about that within this letter? Sure, so let me jump into chapter two here. So again, just using his own words, he said, why should this document addressed to all people of goodwill include a chapter dealing with the convictions of believers? I am well aware that in the area of politics and philosophy, there are those who firmly reject the idea of a creator or consider it irrelevant and consequently dismiss as irrational the rich contribution which religions can make toward an integral ecology and the full development of humanity. Other view, others view religions simply as a subculture to be tolerated. Nonetheless, science and religion with their distinctive approaches to understanding reality can enter into an intense dialogue fruitful for both. So he says, I would like from the outset to show how faith convictions can offer Christians and some other believers as well, ample motivation to care for nature and for the most vulnerable of their brothers and sisters. And then he enters into the wisdom of the biblical accounts, starting with Genesis, you know, and talking about God saw that everything that God had made and beheld it, that it was very good. The Bible teaches that every man and woman is created out of love and made in God's image and likeness. This shows us the immense dignity of each person who is not just something, but someone. A person is capable of self-knowledge, of self-possession, of freely giving themselves and entering into communion with other persons. So he goes through, like I say, starting with Genesis and talking about how we have refused to acknowledge our creaturely limitations. There's a quote in Genesis chapter one about having dominion and subduing the earth. And he says, this in turn distorted our mandate to have dominion over the earth, to till it and keep it. As a result, the originally harmonious relationship between human beings and nature became conflictual. It is significant that the harmony which St. Francis of Assisi experienced with all creatures was seen as a healing of that rupture. This is a far cry from our situation today, he says. We are not God. The earth was here before us, and it has been given to us. This allows us to respond to the charge that 
Judeo-Christian thinking on the basis of Genesis account, which grants humans dominion over the earth, has encouraged the unbridled exploitation of nature by painting humanity as domineering and destructive by nature. This is not a correct interpretation of the Bible as understood by the church. So again, he continues to go through first the Hebrew Bible, Old Testament, depends on your perspective, what you want to call it, quoting Psalm 24, the earth is the Lord's, and quoting Deuteronomy, the earth with all that is within it, and uh, God rejects every claim to absolute ownership, saying in Leviticus, the land shall not be sold in perpetuity, for the land is mine, says the Lord, for you are strangers and sojourners with me. And so um, going on and on, he, he does a really interesting segment on the story of Cain and Abel and seeing how envy led Cain to commit the ultimate injustice against his brother, killing him because of jealousy. And the Pope's commentary on that story, uh, because the Bible, Genesis chapter four says, God talking to Cain, what have you done? The voice of your brother's blood is crying to me from the ground, and now you are cursed from the ground. And the Pope's commentary is disregard for the duty to cultivate and maintain a proper relationship with my neighbor for whose care and custody I am responsible ruins my relationship with my own self, with others, with God, and with the earth. So, I mean, that kind of, if I didn't even go on into the New Testament and, and some of the quotes there, this is um, going down to the very roots from the very first book of the Bible and saying, look, let's look at the significance of how we can interpret and find the riches of the biblical word. Um, there's a section in this chapter called the mystery of the universe in which he looks, he says the word creation is broader in meaning than the word nature because it illuminates for us. So again, how we, the stories we tell, the, the ways that we configure our understanding of life, humanity, the world, the mystery that surrounds it all, are the ways that drive our morality. And the Pope is keenly aware that our morality comes from the narratives that we, so if our narratives are pure free market capitalism, then humanity is a consumer. Whereas if our stories, if we want to ground ourselves in a mentality that will lead to a morality that supports planetary life, then we need to get ourselves into a framework. And he says, thinking of ourselves as creatures within a creation, of which everything is creatures within a creation, then um, that is going to change our moral trajectory. And so then I, he talks about evolution, you know, and the church definitely, the Catholic Church definitely accepts evolution as a way that God has this slow, changing, evolving kind of world is it's a useful scientific 
modality to think about how things have come into being over the long period of time. Then again, talking about, he says, it would be mistaken to view other living beings as mere objects subjected to arbitrary human domination. When nature is viewed solely as a source of profit and gain, this has serious consequences for society. This vision of might is right has engendered immense inequality, injustice, and acts of violence against the majority of humanity, since resources end up in the hands of the first comer or the most powerful. And he goes to Matthew chapter 20 to correct that kind of vision, saying, Jesus is saying, you know that the rulers of the Gentiles lord it over them and their great men exercise authority over them. It shall not be so among you, but whoever would be great among you must be your servant. And then the message of each creature and the harmony of creation is another section. Universal communion is another section the common destination of goods. So he's using the biblical word and each of those pieces, harmony of creation, universal communion, common destination of goods. That means in Catholic talk <laughs> that everything on the planet has been placed there by the creator so that everything can live and have their needs met. So the common destination of goods is the sense that the creation is for all beings. And, and then the last section is called the gaze of Jesus. And so how did Jesus look at creation? So there you have quotes from the beginning to the end of the Bible being used as part of the whole way of expressing this. But I hope by now you are getting the sense that this work Laudato Si, is profound. You can find it online. Look up Laudato Si, Vatican. Do that Google search with those words, Laudato Si, Vatican, and you will get the document online. So you can just, and in whatever language in the world that you want to read it in. So anyway, pick a paragraph, any paragraph, seriously, any single paragraph in this, you know, 120 something page work is going to give you just enormous amount to chew on, preach on, talk with your neighbors and your um, crazy uncle about or whatever. You know, it's it's an amazing in-depth reflection. And I just wonder how many months it took. I don't know this how many months it took the Pope to compile all of these pieces that are in here. Thanks so much for listening to the Brew Theology Podcast. This is part one with Dr. Celeste Rossmiller on Laudato Si. If you'd like to learn more about Brew Theology, you can find us at brewtheology.org. You can find us at Brew Theology on Facebook and Instagram at brew underscore theology on Twitter. And if you'd like to start your own Brew Theology chapter, you can email Ryan or Janelle at brewtheology.org. Please like and share. Thanks so much for listening. Cheers.